0: quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content. And if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel. That would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Denny, welcome back to 10% True. It's great to have you on the channel again.
1: Steve, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me again. I am surprised. You know, uh, I hope I've helped your readership and your, your, your viewers uh as as they listen to me drone on but the 104 is an exciting aircraft for me to talk about i've had some absolutely wonderful experiences flying in the airplane met terrific people
0: this is this is something to to look forward to then so so just for everybody's understanding if you are tuning in there are three previous episodes with Denny, as you've, uh, as Denny's already referenced. If you haven't caught up on those, watch those first because we're kind of doing things in chronological order. Um, and I, I should be honest and say we did actually, we did actually talk about F one hundred four before, didn't we? Um, uh, but I didn't publish it because I think there was a sense that we we rushed it a little bit. So what we're doing here, because we care about the quality of um, the podcast, and and Denny cares about um, telling the story in the way that he's happy with, is we're re-recording. And uh, which means it should be flawless. And I can see, uh, Denny, you've brought some props along too, uh, which you're presumably going to use during the course of this conversation. So, um, so, so, today w- w- you, uh, if I remember correctly, because it's been a couple of weeks since we talked, you got to the F-104 by going to Luke and becoming part of the Fighter Weapons School for the F-104. Is that correct?
1: That's exactly right. I had just finished flying the F-105 at McConnell Air Base in in Kansas, and uh, the Air Force uh, had made a decision to uh, essentially uh, transfer those aircraft to the National Guard and to the Air Force Reserve. And uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to fly the F-104 at Luke. And I began that uh, in July of uh, uh, 1972 uh, at uh, at Luke, and uh, that was my my, my last flight uh, in the F-105. Uh, and the first uh, first several sorties that I flew at Luke, the, the most seventy of them, uh, was learning how the their technique of teaching people to become instructor pilots in the aircraft at, at Luke Air Force Base. And uh, my initial job after I got checked out as an instructor in the F-104 was training uh, not all, but mostly German young, young pilots that had just under finished their undergraduate pilot training program in the T-37 and T-38. And we were introducing them at Luke Air Force Base into the F-104. First checking them up in the airplane, making sure they could fly. But then began the whole process of teaching them the entire syllabus of how the F-104 was being used. And that included uh, uh, basic, basic uh, uh, flying, of course, but then uh, air-to-air where we're teaching them basic fighter maneuvers, advanced combat tactics, and uh, the how, how to actually f- f- first fly the aircraft but then learning how to fight with it at loop. But we also taught them uh, being able to navigate low level in the F-104 for air-ground delivery uh, with uh, conventional weapons. But also with nuclear weapons, and so we taught them the, the the full range of all of the things that they could be called upon by the German air force once they got assigned back back home in Germany.
0: So if we unpack that a little bit, then uh, when we talk about fighter weapons school today, we sort of think of that PhD level um, Nellis-based six-month program or year-long program. I can't remember how long it is where you know, you you end up a real master in, of your trade and you, you go there having already, you know, been a four-ship flight lead and and have some experience. Um, so this sort of fighter weapons school was um, a sort of combined learn to fly the airplane, learn to employ the airplane, and then go back to your unit type thing rather than graduate as a PhD level student in the airplane. Uh,
1: actually, there were two different programs that we're talking about here. Uh, the, the fighter weapons school was a separate unit and, uh, and, and, uh, they, and we had two courses there. We had a long course that essentially uh, was this PhD level course that you're talking about. But this was for people who were already weapons instructors in their own squadrons back in Germany. And uh, they would be assigned a loop. Uh, we had Canadians on board. We had uh, uh, folks from Holland were there. And so, but that was kind of a different unit. This the first part that I was involved in was was basically teaching second lieutenants uh, that were essentially first flying the aircraft. That was their first assignment, autopilot training, and I did that for about a year and a half, and, and and then got set got picked to go through the fighter weapons school course itself, and then. They chose me to lead it. (laughs) And so I I wound up leading this uh, group of folk. Uh, And that came uh, probably uh, halfway through my tour at uh, at Luke Air Force Base. And uh, it it was interesting. The aircraft, all the aircraft were uh, painted with U.S. markings. But they were actually owned by the German government. Okay. and uh and my salary uh was paid for by the germans uh to the us it was a, a, kind of an interesting arrangement
0: what what was the airplane like then from a so, so if you you're if we deal with the first part first so you're a german a pilot who's just graduated from flying the t38 what was the transition like from the t38 to the to the f104 for those for those students of yours then
1: I don't think, I, I, I didn't see any trouble at all with those people. The T-38 was a wonderful aircraft to be able to teach people how to fly a century-series aircraft. Uh, the T-38 accelerated very fast and wrong. Uh It handled well, it rolled very, the, the, the rolling rate on T-38 is, uh, is phenomenal. If you don't watch yourself and you put that stick full to the left or to the right, you're gonna bang your head on a cockpit it's just uh i mean it just it'll really you know very responsive the f104 uh you, there were some aspects of that because the high detail here uh that uh you can get yourself in some trouble if you don't uh, pay attention to what you're doing and uh but the people had you know in terms of being able to take off and land the aircraft i don't remember any problem with any of the students that were coming out of the UPT to be able to step into that machine and fly it.
0: Well, Were those problems then uh, in terms of the high T-tail, were they similar to the ones that you had talked about? I think you talked about with the Voodoo, um, yeah, airflow blanking, blanking or something similar to that. Uh, what, what was the issue then with the high T-tail for the F-104?
1: It's a, a, It's true for any aircraft with a high tail like that. And if you get the angle of attack up high enough, you're going to get a downwash on the tail and it'll push the nose way up. They call that a pitch up. And so there were veins that were added to the sides of the fuselage. I'll grab my S model. There were veins that were added to the size of the fuselage in here on either side that would measure the angle of attack that the aircraft had at the same or the rate of movement there goes my canopy (laughs) and so in any event uh uh, there were mechanical devices that were added to the machine to help alleviate that issue and warn you that you're about to get into uh an area that the aircraft is going to do things on its own and uh uh, and that was uh, something that I specifically taught, especially to all my students, but more in a fire weapon school because they're uh, more often, more apt to get into some of these uh, higher, higher maneuvering areas with lower speed that uh, put you in a, into an area of, of, of a problem. Uh, the F-101 had the same problem. And there were a lot of F-101 pilots that actually died uh, learning about this phenomenon called pitch up. But w- once you understood how how, how this uh, this this behaved back here with this angle of attack, uh, the aircraft itself, if you maneuvered it and, and paid attention to what the which what the nose was doing on you. Uh, it turned
0: out to be a, uh, basically a non-issue. Hmm. What was the? Uh, I, and I know it's been a long time, so you might not remember the, the figures. But what sort of performance um, limits did it have? How fast could it go? How, fly, how high could you get it? Where was it? Where was it designed to operate as well? So obviously, nuclear emission. Has, there's a low-level component to that. Um,
1: well, actually, the very first F-104, the A models, were all designed as air-to-air interceptors. It was designed by Kelly Johnson to be able to take off and it would be loaded with uh, AIM-9 uh, Sidewinder missiles and it had a radar on it that was to be able to go out and find a Russian bomber and, and shoot it down. So it was, a, it was an air defense interceptor initially later, as the uh, uh, availability of the aircraft became fairly known, they strengthened the the wings and added hard points for uh, air-to-ground weaponry that could be loaded on the aircraft. That became the C model. I never flew either of these aircraft. Uh, Matter of fact, the C models, uh, they flew those, uh, they sent the a bunch of them over to South Vietnam, and they were, they were used as uh, air-to-air fighters, uh, escort for the uh, people going up into North Vietnam. And, uh, but there were, you know, by the time I got uh, to Vietnam in the F-105, the F-104s are gone. Mm-hmm. They'd already been pulled back. But the, uh, German Air Force, uh, as it was recon- being reconfigured, um, was looking for an aircraft to replace the F eighty uh, four after the German Air Force was reconstituted, uh, and uh, th- there were they went through this uh, a, a fair search, uh, and and there was a bit of a. Uh, 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 discussion going on within the German Air Force of what kind of aircraft that they were looking for. And the, the senior leadership within the Luftwaffe realized that uh, what they were looking, actually looking for in the mission that they were going to be assigned was an air-to-ground mission, not an air-to-air day fighter. And it turns out the F-104 is absolutely perfectly suited be an aircraft that would be could be loaded with a nuclear weapon that could fly very fast at very long range at low level uh, for this uh, uh, nuclear strike delivery capability uh, that they were looking for and that's where the f-104 g model came in and that's you can recognize a g model because it has a single straight down here, right at the bottom. There's only one
0: uh, right okay. there. yeah.
1: And it's fairly long. And it's for um, increased stability at higher speeds, at you know, high Mach numbers. That's, that's the purpose of this thing. And this is showing a, let's get this thing turned here. Oh, yeah. You can see my Nuke that's oh, loaded on here. Is that a b61 that's a b61 and it's configured in a, a typical strike package that uh, you you would have seen if you were as i did later on uh go to these strike squadrons and uh and to evaluate them so this is how it was loaded or created and if you again if you look at the airplane there's not much drag Hmm. It's it is a you know f- the front area is pretty low. And this thing will go a very and it's very, very stable at high speeds, even at low level. the S model you can recognize because it has two additional ventral strikes. Ventral fins added on the outside. Again, these are added for higher at the higher speeds. And the S model stands for Sparrow, and it had they added the additional hard two additional heart points uh, on, and so it had a total of nine. Hmm. So the air defense guys, could, they took the gun out of the S model for the air defense guys. Uh, the air to ground guys or the new guys retained the gun. And uh, the, the uh, aircraft uh, could be could carry two Sparrow missiles, plus either four or six, depending upon what pylons that they decided to load those on with uh, Sidewinders. So as a Air defense, and they they kept that in in the inventory at, in Italy for you know for quite some time.
0: With the Italians, uh, we'll get back to flying the airplane in a minute, but but you you mentioned the S, S model, so let's talk about it. But were the Italians the only operators to use the S model?
1: Oh no, the, the Turks had them as well. Okay. Uh, I I think the Italians had the preponderance of them. But I think there was a. a, a rough, I think roughly sixty of them went to uh,
0: Turkey. To Turkey as well. How, how how good was it? And one of the things that I, I immediately think of is uh, detection range for a radar or power output for a radar is is proportional to the size of the 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 diameter of the uh, radar antenna. Um, you've very. Uh, Uh, amply demonstrated there that it's a pencil thin design so how far could that radar see out to support uh, a sparrow missile in flight i mean were you getting the same sort of um, engagement ranges from an f-104s as you would do something else carrying a a sparrow Um, any any other fighter design i mean i'm thinking i was thinking f-16 the adf versions the f-15 the f-18 but that's slightly unfair because they had more advanced radars but in terms of detection ranges um, was there uh, a similar capability between those, those airplanes?
1: Actually, they wound up with a different radar. Uh, and the, the G model radar, uh, or the G model uh, was not designed to fire a sparrow. Uh, you, you could only fire uh, a lighters, uh with a G model. And the uh, radar sweep and the uh, G model, if, if you look at the radar scope itself, you've got the bronze scope. The, the the sweep was like this in the s model you could hit a switch and they had a better radar and it was designed for uh actually for the sparrow itself so you could fire a radar uh missile as compared to only uh, a heat seeker and the on on your bronze scope instead of having the sweep going like this with the S model, you could switch it so it would go back and forth with what we called a B scan, which we had in air defense command. the 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 people in the F one hundred six and the F one hundred two, the sweep was like that. And the beauty part of that is, if you're getting in close on a, this type of a sweep, and down here, you're gonna you're gonna be down and where there's a lot of clutter, uh, and, and it is very difficult to tell the the uh, what direction it the blip is on a B scope, as you get down in range, and here's a center, when you get down over here, you you, you could tell he's right over there, it's, a, it's a, you get a, a, a lot clearer picture.
0: So, so was it uh, a, an effective solution than the F104s? Could, could you because you know, so you've got with the sparrow, the sparrow, you have to continue illuminating the target with the Um, radar from the airplane because the Sparrow is going to home in on the radar reflections from that transmission you've got two missiles presumably not massive range in terms of being able to to target something Um, was it an effective solution uh, as as a sort of carrier of the Sparrow then Was, was it was it good for its time was it good by other standards was it impressive or not
1: well, I uh, actually, to be fair, I I, I never actually flew uh, with uh, air-to-air guys, and, and that was a different squadron at at, at Rimini. That was two-three squadron, and I was flying in one-02 uh, uh, Stormo, which was the or groupal, uh, which is uh, the air-to-ground guys. This this was this is a squadron I flew in okay <laughs> and, and uh that with the uh s model and um, but to answer your question directly i think that uh, 104 uh for the defense role that was well suited for that It could carry a they could it had pretty decent range uh the s model uh, the range was wrong I, I think almost uh 800 miles you know, so,
0: I mean, it is. Where, where was all the fuel carried? Uh,
1: where was it? Yeah, uh, external, external tanks mostly? External fuel tanks plus internal fuel, you know? Where,
0: and where was the internal fuel then? I mean, it doesn't look like there's space to carry any. Because the the, wing, the wings are razor thin, so there was no there were no wing tanks. Oh, it presumably.
1: was, yeah. The, yeah, the fuel was carried up and, you know, and fuel tanks right, right you know, right along the fuselage on the top.
0: And that would um, that would give you eight hundred miles. But what about what was the range then if you weren't carrying those tanks? I mean, let's say you had to combat Jettison. I'm asking you question. I'm asking you about parametrics that are probably dim and distant in your memory. But if you had to combat Jettison those fuel tanks, you know how much internal fuel range did you get?
1: There was a little bit of a difference between a two seater and a single seater. A two seater on the G model, uh, uh, the internal fuel was. uh, I think it was 5,200 pounds. And uh, the F, the two seater, the F model, TF model, I, I think you went down to 4,800 because uh, they used up some of the space for a gas tank uh, for the second seat. And uh, and, and, and that would, uh, if, if you're taking off in a, a clean aircraft with only internal fuel and going on a Mach 2 run, uh, as we did at Luke Air Force Base, every one of these airplanes uh, pulling out the line and uh, cleaning tanks off and, and, you know, on a two-seater, it would stuff a pilot in the front seat and I'd climb in the back seat and off we would go. It'd be a fairly short mission. you take off and climb up at a fairly steep angle. Uh, run out, get up to 35,000 feet, put the, shove the throttle up, go in an afterburner, and it'll run in Mach 2. And mm-hmm. uh, when I got and, and the fuel controller, and the J79 engine on this machine was rather interesting, because once you you get to Mach 2, you can actually push it past Mach 2 to about 2.2. And eventually, you're going to get this what's called a slow light, which because the temperature... Uh, 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 is uh, leading-inch temperature and the canopy pressures and so on. Uh, they're, the designer is saying, slow this thing down. So you come on an afterburner and pull the nose up, and I've been up to 55,000 feet in that thing uh, with a student, and, uh, and then slowly roll over and point the nose right straight back at Luke Air Force Base, and come back uh, and land, uh, maybe thirty-four minutes.
0: <laughs> wow. How how do you how do you do that then in terms of the navigation? Did you have like a a direction finder? Were you using TACAN or something like that? Because at Mark Two, I don't know. I'm not going to try and do the maths in public. You're traveling you're traveling lots of miles every minute, and presumably you can't see at fifty five thousand feet. You can't see Luke. Um, or maybe it's a little spec, but how would you actually know where to go?
1: We used TACAN, but it also had a Doppler uh, navigation system, and so you can, you can dial up your home plate, and the needle would point to it and tell you how yeah. far away, how far away it is. But we, yeah, we were principally using TACAN.
0: Okay, you said that you. Uh, were teaching the german students then if we go back to the sort of the the uh, initial role that you had so you were teaching the german student, students how to fly and fight the aeroplane What well, what strengths and weaknesses did it have in in that area then so obviously it was fast uh, you um, had range was it maneuverable was it something that you would probably want not to get into a dogfight with uh, what was your opinion of it
1: well, in, in terms of uh, its role in the air to ground, it was almost identical, in my mind, to flying the F one hundred five. But it was uh, the, the the handling control qualities of the aircraft were excellent. Uh, the uh, the roll rate was just absolutely fine, uh, and in terms of its maneuverability, to be able to get uh, uh, weapons on the ground, it, it, it was it was it was certainly suitable. There's no doubt about that. Uh,
0: and, and was it something that, so were you flying against, I don't know, F-84s, F-86s, um, other Century Series fighters? Did the, those German students get exposure to dissimilar types during? No,
1: not not, not with us. They may have back in Germany once, the, but at Luke, we were, the, the air-to-air fighting we were teaching them was first these basic maneuvers of how you, Flying aircraft, teaching these things called a high speed or a low speed yo-yo, mm-hmm. where you're attacking an aircraft, and if you uh, if you need a little bit of extra energy, you can pull to, pull to the inside of the turn and then come back up. That's a low speed yo-yo. High speed yo-yo, you're coming in really fast, and it, and you want to get out of the higher up to. To slow things down so you can get a, your nose on, on the you know. So we were teaching those sort of things, but it was all F one hundred four against F one hundred
0: four. What were the what were the common mistakes that you would see out of students then? What sort of things did they? You, you, I mean, you said that they didn't struggle to transition, you know, administratively. Let's say in the administrative phases of flight from from a T thirty eight to an F one hundred four. But what did they struggle with tactically?
1: I think uh, well, it depends on whether uh, an air to air. It's, uh, it's learning the the process of being able to maneuver the aircraft around, uh, and and being able to feel what the airplane is telling you, because at the same time, uh, developing a sight picture of what it is that you're looking for, uh, and and. Uh, uh, and, and essentially the same thing for air to ground. Uh, it, it's, it, it's just a learning process. It, it's, it's not that much, to, well, trying to teach someone how to play golf. Uh, you know, how, how you hold your body and how you how you swing at this uh, ball is, is all a, a learned process. It's, you can talk about it all day long, but you actually have to do it. In order to be able to uh, to learn it, and 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 then while they're in the process of, of doing this, um, I, I try not to be too chatty in in the cockpit, blowing in his ear, uh, but uh, at the same time instructing him. You know, pull, put the nose down a little bit more, pull it a little bit tighter. Okay, so that this is the side picture you're looking for. Uh, if you get yourself in this other one, now you got to do this other thing. And so uh, it, it was basically helping them develop a feel for what it was that they were about.
0: I I might be um, sort of exposing my limited geography knowledge here, but I think Luke's in Arizona, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah it sure is right outside. It's just a little bit west of Phoenix.
0: So, so from a obviously from a German Air Force point of view, um, European weather, notoriously bad. You 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 would have known that. And, uh, of course, they, they, they would have had to sort of live with that. How did the training from a weather point of view work then? Because if you're teaching them low-level navigation, it's one thing to do it over Texas, where presumably it's sunny most of the time, um, pretty good weather most of the time, and, and another thing altogether to come back to Europe and then try and do that in, in weather. What did you do to prepare them for that? Or was there a separate... A program that they would then go through when they got back to Germany to um, expose them to to that particular hazard.
1: Yes, it was uh, the uh, the course The reason why the, the Germans have uh, had them trained, being trained in Germany or in uh, Arizona in the first place, is because of that fine weather, terrific access to gunnery ranges, air to air ranges, and so on. And you could build a predictable pattern and a you know, predictable time. Of the of uh, accomplishing all of these training uh, uh, sorties and these syllabuses, but once they graduated from our program at Luke, they went to uh, Air Base in Nieber in northern Germany to become acclimated to uh, the poorer weather conditions that exist in Europe.
0: We'll we'll get into because uh, obviously you end up going to Europe. Um, we'll get into that in a bit then. But but can we just talk? Um, a little bit about then this your move after sort of 18 months or so to the fighter weapons school going through first as a student and then becoming the the, the commander of that um again i'm showing my ignorance but, but i suppose that's the point of these conversations isn't it that that um you know you're you're learning but when did the Fighter weapon School concept start, um, and, and, and where did the F-104 program sit in within that? Again, today we're used to seeing Fighter Weapon School principally being based out at Nellis in, in Nevada, um, and, and every, they're all together, the different schools are all together, so I guess they can sort of pull resources and share knowledge and that kind of stuff. But where did the F-104 Weapons School come from, and where does it sort of sit in the history of the, of the Weapons School as a whole?
1: It, it basically uh, started i but you know i'm not i'm not a, i'm not sure about the history of the development of the f-104 uh, fighter Weapons school but it was a it was a, a german air Force us air Force uh, uh, fighter weapon school and so as the f-104 was uh, developed i'm sure it's probably about the time when uh, that, after a year or two the the, the leadership at that time decided to form it, but it was at form at Luke. Uh, I don't know that there was a F 104 uh, uh, fighter weapons school at Nellis. Okay. Uh, there, there may have been, but I th- this part I'm ignorant about. I, I, I don't know. But so if the, ours was at Luke, and our, our, we had a, our, our own unique uh, fighter weapons school patch that uh, very similar to the design of the one up at, uh, at, at Nellis but we did, certainly did not, we wanted to uh, keep some of the attributes that they had but we had our own that was, uh, that the guys probably wore. And you know, and in terms of its capability of what we taught, we taught the exact the, the, the core syllabuses that we developed at Luke in uh, uh, the fighter weapons school were no different than what we're teaching in the F-4 or F-111 fighter weapons schools up at Nellis.
0: You, you, you've already given a, an example of that. You talked about the pitch-up and the fact that if you were uh, experienced, you were more likely to get into that regime and experience that. Well, what sort of other things were, or, or what sort of things was the fighter weapons school Teaching guys about—did um, you do a lot of electronic warfare type stuff? Um, was it all about tactics? What other elements were there to the syllabus?
1: Yeah, we, uh, as a matter of fact, there was a couple of things that we did. Uh, there were some, uh, one, one. Well, we we the entire spectrum of the use of the aircraft by these weapons instructors back in Germany. So we had courses that uh, refinements and uh, nuclear weapons delivery procedures and tactics. Uh, We had a fair amount in air to ground uh, with conventional weapons, whether dive bomb uh, shooting rockets. Uh, We would experiment with different tactics from people coming in at different angles and timing to create confusion on the ground and, and maybe create some timing issues for the people on the ground and, and, and so we, we spent a fair amount of time with that. We also spent a lot of time uh, in the air-to-air uh, uh, change. Because, as you know, the F-104 has a very high wing-loaded aircraft. And it's, it's, it's really not a dogfighter at all. But that doesn't mean you can't fight with it. And, and, and uh, what we learned how to do is to create tactics where instead of attacking an in air, in aircraft, Coming in, trying to come in at the tail end, we were teaching tactics where we would come down like this, high, and strafing our target, and then busting right on through, and if the aircraft uh, turned and saw us, we could just run out. Hmm. This air, I could get this airplane from crews at 19,000 feet. The V max on a deck over 800 knots in 19 seconds. I mean, it would it would move, and uh, and and, and uh, you know. So if they came down, we're gone. We're going to outrun anything they got loaded on that airplane. There's just no way they're going to hit us. And uh, and so we were teaching these tactics. And if the aircraft continued its turn. We are already really fast. We had a lot of energy on the aircraft come back up into the fight, And, uh, and we taught with a particular maneuver called a butterfly. And uh, it, it was a, a maneuver that, uh, that took advantage of the tactics uh, that you could develop with the F-102, uh, F-104. A lot of our flights were instead of flying wing where you're, you're like this, we we're flying abreast and, uh, and and self-supporting each other, as well as being able to uh, uh, take advantage of the of the speed and power of the F-104.
0: So, if you're coming downhill on them, the obvious question then is: What sort of performance did the radar have uh, against ground clutter? How far out could you pick up a fighter-sized target that was lower than you?
1: You mean for the for air to air or uh, yeah,
0: or, for air to air? So if if you've got if you're going to bounce a couple of you know a couple of fighters over well, here, you've got to well, come I, in from I, up high. Yeah, we we
1: we were work, working uh, radar missiles. We were uh, the, uh, at that time we were lo- basically would be loaded with Sidewinder. But but uh, you weren't
0: you weren't using your onboard radar to find these guys? You were using GCI or no, just visual? Used,
1: yeah, we're, yeah, huh? it, it was, uh, initially you could you could sweep and and see them uh, but again in the, in the weapons school we had G models and so we had this this age can school and uh and, and uh if they were out far enough you could see them uh but we eventually got to the point where we're pretty much looking for them visually
0: so, am I right in thinking then, or, or inferring then that 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 radar was principally a, a ground mapping radar, or or a, a you know, so that's that's the utility of the radar. It's for navigating when you were low to the ground, rather than really using it to find um, bad guys in the air.
1: Yeah, exactly right. It was, it was, it was really designed for uh, uh, re- by searching the ground, looking for you know radar. your... your uh
0: navigation path so, so did you on, on the air to air side of things then did you have visiting units from across the u.s who would come and give you exposure to different you know different platforms you've said that you're not a dog fighter you're going to do these slashing attacks so you, you don't want to get into a turning fight so um you know did you try to get into a turning fight to show them you know, the futility of of trying to do that? Or were your, again, were were all your flights against other F-104s? Well, as it turns
1: out that uh, uh, I had a friend of mine, Earl Henderson, that was uh, the commander of the uh, aggressor squadron up at Nellis when I was leading the F-104 fighter weapons school and they called up Earl one day and they said, Earl, are you interested in coming down to fight us? And he jumped at the chance and came down. And so, yeah, he came down with his uh, T-38s. And, uh, and we did uh, we did fly against them. Uh, they were shocked to find out the first air-to-air engagements. Uh, we took a lot of pictures of T-38s coming right <laughs> straight down, looking at the cockpit and right through the pipe. And, and they, were, they were used to turning around, trying to look backwards, and, and seeing somebody come down with their tailpipe that was not where we were
0: <laughs> so how how did you how did you orchestrate that then so if you you're not using your onboard radar you're not sort of building a picture from 20 30 miles out um, are you, are you using gci to position you and talk your eyes onto these guys what was the no
1: we didn't use gci at all there was uh, yeah we did we we did try to uh, figure out where they were by taking a peek at the radar but uh, once but we were really aiming at, uh, and we would use that to be able to position ourselves, in, in, in uh, altitude-wise, and diagonal, you know, whatever the geometry wanted, to be able to uh, to engage the battle. But we were working with our eyes and uh, with the uh, you know WITH the what the what the, the of course THIS attack. We're we're going after them with the gun. Mm. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, uh, Vulcan cannon in there that uh, 100 rounds a second.
0: You uh, obviously are not using a heads up display in the format that is common today, where you've got a funnel that tells you where the rounds are going to fall and, and so on. So, you had a lead computing optical site, something. Not, yeah, not a million it, miles away from what they were flying in Mustangs in, in World War Two. Yeah, right?
1: It, it, it did have a lead computing begun uh, sighted in it. And uh, uh, the work. Well, one of the things I taught specifically in this uh, F 104 is that we're going back to this word called pitch up. And I, I knew we're dealing with people that are weapons instructors in their own fire squadrons. And so their, their task at home was to be able to help. Uh, uh, teach their pilots, their line pilots, you know, how, how to use a airplane. Some of the guys were were kind of nervous uh, of, of getting an airplane really slow, and so one of the tech, techniques that I used and I taught my own you know, fire pilots to, to to use this was to put the student in a position that weapons instructor, they're in the front seat, I'm in the back seat. And get the airplane going, and then point it straight up and uh, and, and to let it run out of airspeed. And and then tell them to lock the stick, don't touch the throttle, keep your feet off the rudders. (laughs) And just let the airplane go up and watch the airspeed come right down to zero. And I tell them, you're going to hear a lot of heavy breathing from your <laughs> students when they do this. But the nose is going to fall down, and the pointy end is going to go straight down. And then you just take your time and recover from the diet. And so, uh, you know, so, uh, you know I, I put them in a place where it's an extraordinarily uncomfortable position to be, you know, but taught them how to work your way through the uh, having been put into the position what do you do and uh, and, and and so i i, I helped them and so whether or not you happen to be slightly like this or like that it was you know you, you just lock the control don't touch nothing and, and let it fall
0: did, did the airplane have any other sort of foibles like that then were were there any other parts of the envelope that people were a little bit fearful about
1: uh the, the, yeah, especially coming back in Atlanta because the uh, once you get the gear down, the the the, uh, uh, the pusher is not going to work. Uh, it, it would work if you're with the wheels up, but if they're down, you know that 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 aspect uh, is uh, taken away from you. And the reason for that is that uh, if you're turning base to final and you're running a little bit on the slow side, and the airplane decided. Decides that uh, it's going to give you a kicker. Uh, that's you don't want that to happen right close to the ground, <laughs> you know. So, you know, so uh, many of the pilots would uh, fly the airplane probably a little bit too fast around the base, the final curve, and, and, and wind up wind up fast, uh, aiming getting towards a runway and and and. and, and that can become a problem for you if you develop that habit pattern on a consistent basis, if you run into really fall weather and a wet runway and windy, Mm -hmm. uh, you you probably don't want to have a whole lot of extra energy in the aircraft as you're in that area, you know? So, but uh, some of these things, when the people, when the pilots, you know, that are flying with that were doing this, I might mention it to them just once, because you know they've they they've got to feel comfortable with the aircraft, mm. and uh, and so I just kind of let it go with that. What is
0: what are the challenges of running of landing on a, a, a gosh, get my words out? What are the challenges of landing on a wet runway uh, in in something like an F one hundred four? Then why is that particularly tricky?
1: Oh, it's a stop getting the thing stopped. You know, if you, are I mean, we uh, on a normal day, if, uh, if you're down at uh, normal fuel, uh, you're, you're going to be touching down probably around 160 knots. You know, flying final at uh, you know 180, 175 knots, and uh, if you get uh, uh, the higher winds, that uh, you wind up having to you know bank the aircraft down, you're, you're going to want you're going to you're going to need. You're going to be close to a stall speed if, uh, if depending upon how much you uh, you've got in there. So your landing techniques uh, could change. If you know some some people, if they've got a strong wind coming from the side, would let the airplane cock slightly into the wind, and then just before touchdown, they will kick a nose straight onto, you, know, and then just drop a wing, just before touchdown. And uh, you know, so there were a, a lot of techniques like that that uh, that we had learned that we we tried to pass on to our students. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, must must have been tricky to do wet, wet runway landings in um, Texas.
1: Well, there wasn't many. There, there there were some times where we had some pretty heavy rain in Phoenix. Uh, but it, it wasn't very often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a more common part was to have a bet on uh, what day, uh, what time of day you could fry an egg on an F-104. Oh, really? Is that to, true? I mean, yeah. I always You're thought an, that was
0: I, apocryphal. I, I always thought these sort of stories of, of frying an egg on an L 104 wing were, were sort of apocryphal, yes. but that's true
1: matter of fact the hot the hot weather uh that presented its own issues uh, flew several sorties carrying a dart uh for to allow people to actually shoot at the dart and uh if the temperature got uh, too hot uh, we would shut off flying uh because you were basically run out a runway and uh, to take off, it just you know, and so so they shut it on, uh, roll over the departure end barrier with the uh, wheels on the ground, carrying a dart.
0: <laughs> so what 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 typically was the time of day when you could fry an egg on on the wing?
1: Uh, well, it was around the tenth of May normally. Uh, and okay. It was, uh, yeah, May uh,
0: in May you could do that.
1: In May, yeah. Wow.
0: I definitely live in the wrong country. (laughs) So what about the... um, I mean, we're sort of touching a little bit on, you know, your experience of the German pilots. And I know every Air Force wants to say it's got the best pilots and the best training. So this is not a question about that. Um, But obviously the Germans had struggles with the F-104 early on. What were your impressions? And I've heard that attributed to... You know, mismanagement of the aeroplane, or not really understanding or poor techniques, and 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 again, this isn't about naming and shaming, and it's not about who's best. But what were your what was your understanding of how their experience had been to date when you started working with them, and and what do you think, um, on reflection, was was sort of going on there?
1: I think by the time I started there in uh, nineteen seventy six. That the history of the crashes and the, the, the uh, maintenance procedures uh, and, and, and and operator error um, had pretty much passed. Uh, you know, so when, when I was flying with them, uh, the first thing I did when I went into the these, uh, German fighter squadrons, I said hello to all these people that I had, many of whom I had already known. And, and had flown with that loop either in a fighter weapons school or or as they were uh, undergraduate pilot turning graduates uh, working with them then and so I, I felt I'm going you know I'm home I'm in you know I knew all these a lot of these people well in any event uh, uh, I think a lot of the, the those issues have, have been worked out I think that the uh, maintenance uh, and the uh, per, uh, availability of spares and and that sort of thing uh, was was not an issue at all uh, in the German Air Force that I flew with, uh, and I flew out of uh, three different bases in Germany. Uh, one in uh, southern Germany, in Memmingen, near uh, just a, a little bit west of uh, Munich, uh, and then uh, two of them were up. Uh, one near uh, Cologne in uh, mid central uh, Germany, a uh, place called Buchel up in the Eiffel Mountains. Excellent wine country, by the way. And uh, then a little bit further uh, uh, to the west from that is a air based uh, Norvenik. And uh, and each of these had uh, fighter squadrons that uh, flew in there and all of them and uh i saw very little difference between the the, the uh, uh fighter squadrons in germany uh it, obviously guys are wearing different squadron factors but beyond that uh it, it was very common and, and 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 frankly for me personally not that much different than if i was flying a f-105 at mcconnell Air Base. i mean the the behaviors the attitudes and the people were identical. I mean, we couldn't tell the difference. Other than the fact you're looking at their uniform, and you know, some of these guys are talking German. In the <laughs>
0: so, so this is a uh, this is the next part of your sort of story with the 104 isn't it? So you were if I remember correctly, again, you were heading up a, a nuclear operational readiness inspection team uh, going around Europe. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's part of the, uh, the Eisenhower administration that uh, uh, put in place a requirement for uh, for all of the units that were uh, receiving uh, nuclear weapons to to have a, a team of people that would verify that their loaders were able to load this uh, nuclear weapon. That's <laughs> for uh, 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 properly uh, and, uh, and the pilots were able to uh, navigate to their target, that they did their target study properly so that they knew what their target was, what the running heading was, and uh, what the weapon setting was supposed to be for that particular target. target and to set it up properly well, the Eisenhower administration put all that in place in 1955. And so we were just carrying on exactly the same thing. I was stationed at uh, uh, just a little uh, east of uh, Rangstein Air Base in, in, in uh, Germany, just north of the French border, uh, not that far from uh, Luxembourg, And um, at, at a, our facility was at a place called Capone, Uh, barracks and it was just uh, outside the city of Kaiserslautern in Germany and it was from there that we would travel to these various units to do our job and we had two hats Uh, one hat was to be the eyes and ears for headquarters shape in Mons, Belgium to verify that their units that they had on nuclear work were able to do their job and that was reporting through uh uh the the naval channels and and when we were writing those reports we were, we were writing in the king's english <clears throat> we also had a hat on so i can i still get confused you know i was stationed I was stationed in canada and and, and so they know, it's defense for the sea, or I asked. You know, <laughs> and so in any event, uh, uh, we also had another hat on. We were the eyes and ears for headquarters, USAFE uh, in Ramstein, and our job there was to pick up ideas that the Europeans were using for training and and, and so on, and bring those back too our us units and say hey here's a good idea uh you know and, and uh and so that that was our job and uh we were on the road very very frequently uh rent going to uh, there were uh, we had a, a base in holland at a, t- a place called focal over in uh eastern holland and a place in belgium at uh airbase uh not far from uh, the German border called Kleine Drogum, and, uh, and then uh, the three in Germany that I mentioned, and two in Italy, uh, one uh, the 154 squadron at uh, right outside, not that far from um, Milan, Italy, that were flying F-104Gs, and then the F-104S was at Rimini, over on the Adriatic coast, about halfway on from Ravenna, and uh, it was uh, a terrific uh, tourist town. By the way, uh, great beaches, <laughs> <coughs> and, and so uh, we did a fair amount of travel. Now, the the behaviors of the squatters uh, it really did not matter very much uh, what country you're in. I, You know, the, the, uh, obviously the people are different, and uh, the, but their the structure was ver- very much uh, the same, uh, regardless of what country you're in or what you did in what country, that same country. Uh, they're basically, you know, it's a fighter squadron with a bunch of fighter pilots hanging around and and, uh, and 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 so that's that was that was my experience.
0: Can we can we go back then to you mentioned it right at the beginning, but it's relevant to this. Then just the nuclear role of the aeroplane, and you've got a you showed us your your model with the B sixty one the the nuclear uh, bomb on the bottom of it. Um, what what was the typical profile then of a nuclear strike in an F one hundred four? Were you going to be uh, going on a one way mission, were you going to be going out and dropping something and coming back? What what were you, when you were evaluating these guys, what did the mission profile look like for a one nuclear strike? It
1: depended upon the target itself. Uh, and, uh, uh, that, and I'm, I wasn't privy to, I, you know, I, 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 I actually didn't pay much attention to the actual target that these guys were sitting on. Them. Uh, our duty is to uh, go into the fighter squadron. Uh, we go into the alert facility, and um, uh, I'd ask the uh, pilot for his combat folder, and uh, and then I would ask him to describe to me uh, what the weather is at his target. I would ask him to describe to me what his, his IP, his initial point is, what the heading is from that IP into the target. How how far is it? How much time? And what kind of a maneuver were you planning on uh, uh, delivering this weapon? And what I was doing is looking at the pilot to find out if he actually paid attention to what was <laughs> in, in, in his profile. And uh, and, and almost always uh, they knew exactly what was going on. Then I would go up to the aircraft and make sure that this, of course, I got a a, a guard right with me because he ain't gonna let me out there about my own self and uh, and make sure that the weapon is set up the way it's supposed to be. And that the aircraft is cocked, it's ready to go. And uh, and, 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 and that was our job uh, that was laid down by the Eisenhower administration to, to verify that these guys were doing. Now, once in a while, I would run into a, 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 a a situation where the pilot was uh, actually not prepared, and uh, when they got into a situation like that, uh, I had a phone call with the wing commander and tell him, "Hey, you know, Joe Bag of Donuts over here isn't, you know, he's he's not ready to go, you know." So.
0: <laughs> Joe Bag <of> Donuts, nice. <laughs> um, what? What? But what did it look like? Were you going to? You Know, we, we would you would, would the guy take off and then he'd be straight on the Doppler? Would he be uh, would it be clock, map, um, you know, compass type dead reckoning navigation? Um, how, how long would they be flying for? Would it be a high, low, high type thing? Do, do you remember really what the profiles might look like?
1: Yeah, got- the ones that I saw were all low level, they take off and they had specific uh. Uh, on their map, they had a specific headings, specific storm points, times you know, to, to be able to maneuver the aircraft around. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't remember if uh, I'm, it wasn't I'm thinking about, uh, I think most of those guys be able to deliver the weapon to come back home uh, or, or, you know, or, or head off to an alternative site. But if there, you know, if you're actually in a nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear war, uh, the likelihood of your home patch being there when you get back is, who knows? Mm. Or, you know, or you're, <clears throat> you know, sent off to head off to an alternative base to be able to land there. You know, if there's nukes going off or on, it's, you know, it's, it's really a, a, a real challenge and it's really wonderful that uh uh, this has never happened uh you know the uh the folks sitting over there spent a lot of time uh keeping these airplanes uh maintained and uh spent a lot of time studying the targets and worrying about weather and you know and and thinking about this sort of thing but uh, fortunately uh that never happened
0: when you watch films about uh, nuclear war, the, the president always comes up with some codes and, and things like that, and the codes get transmitted to whatever. Is in my understanding that those sort of rudimentary nuclear capabilities in those earlier years were, once you took off with that bomb, you could drop it, or, or were there some uh, interlocks? Uh, uh, it, it, no,
1: there, there was a... Uh uh, a, a device that we had to cockpit that you had to go through an authentication process to be able to uh, get to the to the correct code, so that you could uh, d- dial up this uh, device to actually arm the weapon. Uh, Manufactured with our squadron, the with they had a new uh, a new uh, version of, uh, of of the B61 brought into Europe uh we I personally flew the shape uh to verify that that that, that thing worked really so it, it wasn't it, w- it was a the shape of a nuclear bomb uh, everything about it worked exactly like a nuke would, but there was no warhead uh-huh.
0: and so and so h- but
1: how we did- had to we had to verify that that thing actually worked and we certified that
0: how did it work then in terms of line of sight? I mean, you're, if you're low level, nowadays you've got satellites you can transmit uh, messages to and therefore they can sort of, you know, you've got line of sight pretty much anywhere. Um, but how did line of sight work? And, and how, I mean, how did you... Uh, administer. You've got all these separate airplanes flying their own routes against their own targets with their own weapons. Was there? How did how did the, it all get transmitted? How did anyone know who was talking to who and, and 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 when they were supposed to be tuning in to get their code or whatever?
1: Well, that yeah, that was uh, they had deconfliction. Con- uh, you know, it's, it's not only the Air Force, but uh, there's other 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 folks that were loaded uh, as well uh with uh, with nuclear weapons and there were, there were deconfliction uh conferences that took place with uh, specific targets being assigned to specific units uh and uh mm-hmm. you know
0: but would um, because you could be on the radio all day long authorizing hundreds of tactical nuclear weapons to be released. Um, was there no way of? I mean, would your code be the same as someone else's code? So everybody in this squadron has the same code, and, and they've all only got to listen to one message rather than. You no, know, there was
1: all different. That was all different.
0: Wow!
1: If I remember right, there was. Everybody had a. You had your own unique.
0: Right. So what what were the the challenges of that mission then? Uh, I'm assuming low level navigation in weather. Uh, I know I and mean, I know that you know they lost F-104s flying into the ground in those sorts of conditions. Um, how difficult was it, and what you know what were the challenges?
1: Yeah, you know, it's exactly that. You know, to keep yourself from hitting the ground. Um, one of the jobs that we did as the uh, F-104 instructor pilot chasing these guys. Right. We had, in, in Europe, we had, uh, uh, depending upon your experience, uh, a different amount of weather that you were permitted to fly in. Uh, and a uh, junior officer uh, that's just beginning would not to be able, not allowed to fly at, uh, in certain weather conditions. Uh, when I got there as a... Uh, instructor pilot and and uh as well as a weapons evaluator i had what was called a black card and in other words i could take off at any weather mm-hmm. it was uh, my personal decision and uh you know and so i had my own you know, i basically used uh the, the same limit that i would have if i were uh, flying a T thirty nine, which i was co-located Within Europe, I flew uh, flew all over Europe in the T thirty nine as as a pilot, and uh, you know so I I I I if it was a hundred and one, hundred feet overcast and one mile visibility or right at that, I would go, mm. and uh, the squadron commanders always put uh, the ju- most junior officer, uh, as the you know, to fly with at that. And that's a much lower than he was permitted to fly with on his own and much poorer weather than he was allowed to fly with on his own. And would take off, he'd take off and I'd be right on his wing and and, 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 and uh, fly low level. And he's looking at the radar, the radar returning on his map and he's guiding himself maybe in the clouds. At 500 feet, you know, and he's running around about 480, 500 knots. Uh, and, and I'm flying with him, looking at my own radar and paying attention to where he is so I don't hit him. And then uh, to be able to uh, check on how well he's doing on his navigation, where he's on course making his turns on time and all that stuff. That was my job, was to to verify that that man was able to fly that route in poor weather. And uh, so we'd go all the way around and get up to the gunnery range and and he'd pull the nose up and drop his uh, his, uh, practice bomb off and the range tower would uh, call off the hit. You know where you know his his range score, and I jot that down, and I dropped down, and I, and I note the time that the the bomb went off, and uh, and so this is all part of the grading criteria. Turn around, come back, and land, and in very very poor weather, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I don't think I ever failed anybody on their navigation ability. Not not there. I did at, at uh, McConnell, but that's a different story <laughs> in the F105, Yeah, but so anyway, that's uh, uh, being able to navigate low level, high speed, in and around cloud, not only clouds, but mountains, hmm. uh, you know, that that is a that is a that is the challenge, you know, of course, dropping a new bomb. Well, there's a challenge.
0: Let's can we deal with those one one at a time then, so in terms of the challenge uh, of navigating in low level weather you, you've already said that you use the radar to help you know sort of you find your way you've got a uh, a doppler system that with an arrow presumably on the adi that points in the direction of where you've got to go what What do you see on that radar scope then uh, I, I suppose most people who have not done it before, including myself, imagine that you get a nice clean picture out of the radar which shows you where the end of a river is or and so if you wanted to sort of flow down that river and and sort of fly between valleys or whatever you could do or in in a valley between hills you could do. What does it actually look like then when you're using the radar to navigate at low level? Is there a lot of interpretation required? Is it very obvious?
1: No, it wasn't. In many cases, it wasn't very obvious at all. You had the that was a learned technique uh being able to learn how to read the radar and uh, to realize uh, what, what it is that you're looking at, and, um, and it's 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 almost like uh, learning a whole other language on its own mm. because uh, the the radar display is uh, is, is not like, it's not like well now they have uh, really great radars where you get a terrific return, but in those you know good definition and all that stuff. That wasn't the case in this particular radar in those years. Uh, you know, we're talking stuff 40 years ago. Just mm. <laughs>
0: did did, uh, did at any point, uh, I'm not trying to be flippant, but did at any point while you were doing these things, did you reflect on the fact, you know, uh, you're doing well to still be alive? I mean, that's that sounds – because you're – you're not trusting the, the very inexperienced guy to not crash you into a hill, but you kind of are trusting the very inexperienced guy to not crash you into a hill, while you're double-checking his calculations by looking at your own radar, radar, and staying visual with him. Did you did you ever come back from any of those sorties and think, well, um, how far, how many more times could I do this before I I become a
1: statistic? I never thought about you it. You never was. thought about that. Wow. No, I had a squadron commander uh, one time. Uh, we were sitting there. And uh, watching these guys take off in the rather poor weather, and uh, the squadron commander what that means, He says, "Denny, he says, I hope those guys realize they're having fun." <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, what about the what about the nuclear delivery profile? Then, why was that a challenging? What did it look like, first of all, and, and, and why was it challenging, secondly?
1: Well, there was depending upon the target. Uh, uh, we had basically two types of deliveries. Uh, one was a radar laid off, which is just, uh, fly right straight over the target instead of your, your, uh, weapons control panel. And then uh, when you got to the point where, uh, the, uh, the machine is ready to release them, uh, the weapon, you, you hit the pick button and and the, and the, and the bomb would release. But you just fly right straight over the target and disappear over the other side. Uh, the other was a, 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 a LAD, which is you pull it up, and the computer would decide uh, after you you know when when to drop the bomb, and the bomb would come off. And, which I've done this with uh, with the shapes, the actual weight of the weapon, and, and, and there's no doubt in your mind that that thing is gone. It's I mean it'll it'll, it'll give you a good punch. And uh and, and then you you do your breakaway maneuver that's you know for that particular target to a very specific heading uh and throttle position bang <laughs> and get to get your tail onto the target uh as as the uh, weapon uh goes off and so that it, it you know it, it comes at your rear.
0: Were you during that um Pull up, then or pitch up, or whatever you call it. Pull up. Um, you're, are you following needles on the artificial horizon the same way as you would an ILS, so that you're you've got the right g loading, you've got the right uh, pitch rate, uh, those sorts of things? Or were you just yeah, pulling I, up to a pitch attitude and then?
1: Yeah, exactly right in the heading. Yeah, you
0: okay. know, it,
1: it, it, uh, I don't remember any you know crosshairs or anything like that. It was just strictly. Uh, uh, on a specific heading and uh, the specific uh, climb attitude.
0: Were you? Was it realistic then with this uh, shape? I mean, can you? Do you remember how far it would fly to the target after you'd released it? And, and was it realistic that you would actually escape the shockwave or the blast wave of the of, of the bomb when it went off?
1: Well, if the calculations uh, we saw were, were accurate, uh, yeah, it, it was it was realistic. Matter of fact, I know that uh, people were using uh, this toss maneuver uh, in North North Vietnam uh, to toss uh, a bomb yeah. into a SAM site.
0: Yeah, Ben Ben was going to tell me about that in my in my second interview with him. He was he had, he called that out as something he wanted to talk about. So, um, okay. So from a, a, a flying point of view then, uh, a little bit different to the things that you had done up until that point, um, was, it, was it a satisfying type of flying to do? Was it something you were happy to be doing or did you want to get back to sort of less evaluation, more sort of operational type stuff?
1: I enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, for not only the flying, which was, which was great, being able to fly uh, in, in Europe uh, with the, with our allies over there was probably one of the highlights of my career. And uh, uh, I met some marvelous people there. Uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, some of them I'm still in touch with uh, the, to this day, longtime friends. You know, it turns out that one of my very first F-104 students at Luke uh, turned out to be uh, a fellow that was half Finnish and mm. half Austrian. And so uh, he, he actually uh, lived in Helsinki for some time. Over. And uh, there was a point in his life as he was growing, the parents were trying to, you know, they are sitting there trying to figure out because his mother was Finnish. And, it, and and you're trying to figure out, you know, well, is this could this fellow going to be Austrian? Is he going to be a Finn, or is he going to be a German? And, uh, <laughs> and it turned out he, you know, he became a German national, and and so on. But uh, yeah, it, so it was experiences like that that were just absolutely delightful.
0: As an aviator, then you you so you flew those four Century Series fighters, and I think I asked you. Which is your favourite? I think you, 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 you said the 104 and the 105 you were, you were fond of. Um, I mean, if you could only go back and fly one of them, which one would it be? Of all the four, of all, well, all the aeroplanes you've ever flown, 238, 237, 239, whatever, which, which one would you go back and fly?
1: Well, I think the only one that can possibly actually fly is the uh, F-104. I don't know that there are any, uh, I know you, the, the F-105 will never be in the air again.
0: No, but but hypothetically, forget yeah. forget the constraints of reality. What if as just if you were to go to bed and, and dream? I, I, I guess I'd say the
1: one before. 104. 104. It, it was the last one. There, there's times that I dream, and this is the most the silliest thing you'll ever hear. But there are times I, dream, I wake up dreaming that you know uh, I think I can go play this thing again. But there's no way. <laughs>
0: Is there no way? Don't don't you think it would come back to you?
1: This this old, tired old firefighter is (laughs) going to be able to get out there and do this. That's for 25-year-old kids, not not you. you.
0: (laughs) But that's actually, I mean, that is a a very good sort of point to to ponder, which is, I I, I mean, I I think I asked one of my previous guests this, um, who had, you know, sort of been out of the flying business for some time. The first thing is then does it feel like a dream to you? Do you i mean you've got your your flight helmet there your hg36 and and you've got your models on sticks and you know when you uh, when we did the f105 interview you had your f105 and you were wearing your your hundred missions t-shirt and um so 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 you have all these things around you um and i know you gave away all of your dash ones and things to to a local museum which is very generous but does it feel like it happened to somebody else I mean, do you still feel a connection to? Do you do you feel a connection to the young man who flew combat in Vietnam? Do, do you think that's me, or do you think, oh, that was someone else?
1: That's an interesting, you know, that's, that's an interesting point of view. Uh, every day, it, in many ways, it does seem like a dream, you know. But it's kind of like a river. Uh, you can go up to that same river every day. And there's water flowing through. You stick your finger in there, in the river, and you pull your finger out, and you put your finger back in. You didn't stick it in the same river, but you stuck it in that first time. It's down there. Yeah. It's gone, and it can never come back. And uh, and and so you know, just the process of living life is 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 kind of like that. Uh, i can't repeat yesterday that uh, even i remember it got very strong feelings about uh, mm-hmm. things that i've done fairly recently but that's all gone mm.
0: there, there is though i mean there are programs where not particularly relevant to you. For example, POWs, you know, the prisoners of wars who came, who, war who came back. Vietnam never really got a finny flight, and I know at Vance they fly, you know, the T-38s, and guys are invited to come and, and sandbag and do their finny flight in T-38. That's pretty cool. Do you seriously think, though, that if you were put into – the backseat of an F-104 and there are F-104s flying you you've, you know you're right there's, a, there's a, a small team I think in the US that does it at least and, and maybe others but that you wouldn't quite quickly get get it back what is it what is it that a 25 year old's got that you in your let's say sort of 70s stroke 80s have not got
1: well for starters I'm half deaf you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and frankly I used to have pretty really good I, I had good reaction type you yeah. know but as age has uh, you know, taken you know, taken me, you know, my reaction time is uh, nowhere near what it was, and so the the, the part of the one of the, one one of the key uh, aspects of flying an airplane is developing a feel for the flow field that's flying by you. So I, you know, I I'm used to driving down the road at about sixty-five miles an hour and so on. But you do that at 200 miles an hour, that's a different story because the the, the feel of the wheel and the, and, and the, the touch on the uh, uh, tires on the pavement and all that stuff is radically different at really high speeds compared to just driving around. And I think the same is true for me. I, I flew, a, I owned a Moody for 35 years. And you know, so I, I know I could, I can get back into that machine, and and and, and fly it, mm. but its final approach speed is about eighty, as compared to a hundred and eighty, yeah. and so.
0: <laughs> do you think? Do you think the uh, this is such a silly conversation? But you're humouring me, and you've not you've not looked at your watch. So I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep going. But do you think that the muscle memory would come back? the so okay reactions fair enough eyesight maybe not as good as it used to be hearings not as good um you know you're probably not going to work that well under g um you know it's going to be more laborious but but do you think that the muscle memory and the systems knowledge and flipping flipping switches and knowing where to look at what times you know i you know ops checks um fuel checks all that kind of stuff do you think that will come back quickly
1: I think it would, it would, take some fair amount of training and, and time uh, just to be able to re, you know, re get my mind uh, uh, back back into the game again. Hmm. Uh, I, I think you can, you know, you, you can retain, uh, and make it come back, but um, it, 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 it wouldn't be just sitting down and being able to do it right off the bat. I, mean, I don't, I don't see that ever happening. Uh, it's, but in many ways, uh, some of this stuff is kind of like learning how to ride a bike. You mm. know, once you know how to ride a bike, you can get on a bike and go. And, uh, and and many ways, I think that this is probably true with uh, you know flying airplanes.
0: You, you've mentioned the the Mooney. Uh, we've obviously skipped ahead to the present day, and we haven't talked about how you ended your your Air Force career. But when when did you leave, and and what did you do when you got out?
1: Uh, the Air Force. Yeah. Oh, I retired uh, in San Antonio. I Was actually working for a medical uh, me- medical officer, uh, uh, Major General, uh, a guy named Fred Fred Dobbel. and uh, we had uh, the, oh, this is part of the Human Systems Division. It's gone, and uh, Brooks Air Force Base, it's gone, and uh, the uh, the units uh, that, that we had underneath us at that time was the Aero Med Lab here at Wright Pat. The uh, Occupational Safety and Health Lab that dealt with uh, uh, cleaning up the facilities for the Air Force was there. I ran the Air Force Human Resources Lab, which was uh, had a couple couple of jobs developing advanced simulators as well as uh, doing studies on people and matching people that, uh, uh, for the various Jobs that are in the Air Force, we broke out what the job requirements were, and then measured attributes of people to match the requirements of that job. So we got the right person in the right job, uh, and, uh, and so that was part of the Human Resources Lab, but also the Aero Med Lab. I mean, the uh, School of Airspace Medicine was there, and, uh, and and so I, based on the experiences that I had there. Uh, we, we moved from San Antonio back up into this house that I'm in right now. We actually bought, uh, uh, the bank bought, uh, when uh, I came from Europe here to Wright-Patterson uh, back in, uh, in 1979, and we're still in our original home. Well, in any event, uh, based on what I did in San, in San Antonio, I was asked to join a company and eventually become the director of engineering of a small company working in this area called pollution prevention, and uh, and this is uh, a, a kind of a, a aspect of, of, of pollution prevention that uh, most people don't realize. If you go at the factory uh, for the, uh, any kind of a maintenance facility in the Air Force or Army or Navy. Um, they do a lot of maintenance, so, so you buy an airplane, you buy it once, but you got to maintain that thing all the time. And so, every once in a while, they send it off to the to a, a depot, and they tear it apart, and they make all the modifications they have to make to it. They maybe strip the paint off and repaint it, take all the grease off, and it. Well, it was that kind of stuff that what we were looking for uh, to be able to help. Uh, Allow the Air Force to continue operating, but still abide by the, the new laws that were just coming out, signed by President Bush 41, uh, and uh, <clears throat> looking at uh, the uses of cadmium, hexavalent chromium, which is a cancer agent, lead, and many other substances. And so we went through the Air Force very diligently looking at all of our maintenance processes and figuring out where and how much of this stuff we were using and then looking for alternatives to replace it. And, wow. uh, and, and the very last one I wound up working was actually uh, in the electronic field. Uh, and that was because of the, uh, uh, the laws that were put in place in Europe forbidding the use of uh, tin, lead, copper uh, solder uh, and household electronics, televisions, refrigerators, and so on, and um, because of the potential cause causing cancer, and, um, and, 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 and <clears throat> the potential cause for cancer is, is there. There is no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, for instance with lead, it's not a question that you're going to it's going to bother you. It's uh, it's actually. How much have you been exposed to? Because that's going to re- relate directly to uh, the effects of, uh, of that uh, in your body on you. And so you work diligently. Well, finding an alternative for uh, tin, uh, tin lead slider isn't an easy task. Uh, and we wound up testing the, the industry, actually, Raytheon and all these other companies went through well over 500 varieties of alternative solders to be able to meet the standards in Europe uh, for electronics. Well, it turns out they said, well, the uh, Department of Defense and Space are exempt. They don't have to abide by that, which is true. Well, that's nice, but if you go to an electronic company, and you're looking for resistors or capacitors, Mm. guess what? Those are all lead free. Because why? Well, they don't just build a resistor only for the military. They use them everywhere. And so, uh, you know, it's prevalent. So we wound up doing a lot of testing of uh, electronic gear. And it turns out if you're working in this new age of micro miniaturization in your electronics, the physical distances that uh, are, are very, very small inside these electronic components. And one of the behaviors of some of these uh, is a, you get a, uh, a spontaneous growth of a neurodentron that goes up and actually causes a short. And uh, we have documented cases of uh, satellites having been launched. Once that satellite is up there, yeah, good luck. on going back up there to fix that thing, and yeah. uh, and and so uh, the uh, you have to you know, your design philosophy of how you work around the backups and all that stuff uh, is, is something uh, uh, you got to really think carefully about uh, okay? because you know if if it fails you're done. that one's done. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Did Did you? I mean. That-
0: you obviously went through, you know, tacit blue, uh, I would imagine, you know, sort of the, there was quite a lot of engineering type, type stuff in there. Um, uh, and then obviously, working in your last role, the aeromed before you retired. Um, but did you miss flying? I mean, so so, you know, the engineering aspect might be a challenge might be interesting, but did you miss flying?
1: I did well. I actually flew. I owned this airplane for you know many many years, and uh, but but at that but, but at this point, I, I, do I miss it? Not so much anymore. I've I've done about everything you can do with an airplane except jump out, and uh, <laughs> and and I don't I don't have any plans on doing that. You know, so and, and I'm at the stage now where you know, flying is really fun. It's terrific, but there's 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 two cases. A guy walks out to the airplane realizing that this is going to be his last flight. This is it. You know, I'm done. There's another guy walks out to the airplane and he doesn't know that it's his last flight. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, but but interesting so so which one are you then because because it could be the di- the guy doesn't know it's his last flight because he kills himself I, I, but I, 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 it, it could be he, he doesn't know it's his last flight because he loses his aeromedical his medical ex- um certification or whatever so which one are you
1: no i just i just i walked i back you know i just walked away i said did, That's it. I'm Was and, it, uh,
0: did something did something happen in flight <laughs> to make you do that
1: not at all you know, I was—I uh, had my Mooney. I sold it here a couple of years ago, but I realized I've just—I've taken off flying and just born holes in the sky. Mm. And, and and after a while, I said, "I've been doing this for you know, I've been flying since 1961, uh, and and I've done this. Uh, I can do it again tomorrow. But hey, as." Almost like that was like, who who sang that song that through
0: the sky? Those- no idea. But what? But what? What about your family then? You you we we, we talked we chatted for about twenty five minutes before we hit record. Um, but and you mentioned that uh, obviously you you have a daughter. I don't know if you have other children, but did anybody else get the bug? Did anyone? I mean, is anyone looking at you know, Grandad Denny and saying, "I want to fly fighters like him"? Or uh, are you the only sort of aviator in the family
1: no i'm not i'm not sure i quite understood what you asked uh did, Steve did, because did, my poor hearing sorry
0: <laughs> did anybody else get the flying bug from you in the family did you God, oh, uh,
1: no not in my family no. i no not really I, although i have had all my grandkids my my dog both my daughters uh flew with me you know frequently uh, you know but uh, flying uh, if, unless you're being paid to do it, it, it gets pretty expensive and uh, so even though they might have gotten the buck and they'd said I'd like to fly I've heard that from two of my grandsons they'd like to fly once they uh, put pen to pencil you know, pencil to paper and they uh, realize that this is expensive and they can't really can't afford it mm. uh, and, and so th- that's an issue. That's very different than what it was when I first started flying. Uh, the, the, you know, I, I could afford it. Work at a gas station, and uh, and, and I, you know, you you, you could do this. Hmm. Not so much anymore.
0: Hmm. One one and one last question, then uh, Denny, and then um, and I'll let, let you go. Um, but is there any? Was there any particular flight you took, uh, or any particular event? Um, that really endures um, any any moment in your flying career that you 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 still think about whether it was for the because it was a good experience or a bad experience. But is there' any one one flight that if you could repeat again tomorrow, you would do.
1: As a matter of fact, there is that uh, there's actually a couple. There's more than one, but this particular one is uh, really comes to mind, and I saw this behavior happen. Break frequently. And I was uh, flying a low level out of Phoenix, Arizona and go get these kids up into the uh, flying over the Grand Canyon and they're flying a low level zipping along and all of a sudden the ground disappears all from underneath them as they go over this canyon and, and invariably they climb. Really? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Was this in the 104?
1: This was in F-104. And uh, (laughs) the the other thing I would do is uh, get along and uh, the flying wing off of me, get to that point, and just I would roll inverted and pull down into the canyon. (laughs) Oh, no way. And and roll out. You know, and uh, not down there very far, very long, but just down and up. And, you know, just... Because I guess, <laughs> but the, but seeing these people just—they're—they're they're flying. I mean, they're going five hundred knots, and, and the ground disappeared all from beneath them, and they're taking they, the slow. They, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Danny, it's been um, a real privilege talking to you for four interviews, many hours of your time. Um, and thank you for sharing all your experiences with us. And uh, if I can get out to, uh, you know, the museum at wright Pat is the best museum in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I, I've i spent two days there. It wasn't enough. I could do it ten, ten, ten times more um, and still probably not take in everything that it has to offer. So if I can get out to wright Pat, I'll come and say hello to you because it would be lovely to meet you in person. But I think from everybody who's listened, um, and particularly the Tacit Blue interview, that, you know, really um, – has has had a fantastic response. So from everybody who's been listening to you. uh, Thanks for your time and, uh, and your generosity.
1: Well, thank you for the interview. And I'll try to do what I can to help you get a couple more lined up. Thank you very much. Cheers, Denny.